as we consider our basketball league being an opportunity for outreach, we have to understand that it's an outreach opportunity because there are so many lives around us that are broken. I think sometimes we have forgotten that reality. However, many families and individuals all around us are suffering brokenness in their lives and they need help rebuilding. The truth is, that's why our sermon series through Nehemiah is so important, because there are so many lives today that need to be rebuilt. You know, in Nehemiah's day, the city of Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt, but more importantly, it was the Jewish people who needed to be rebuilt. Their rebellion against God had caused their exile, but God had already begun with the process of rebuilding the life of the people. And so here in Nehemiah, we've already seen where God had put Nehemiah in a position, being the cupbearer of the king so that he would be in the perfect position to ask to go and rebuild the city, but also he would be in a place to ask for the supplies he needed. Now, as we finish chapter two and begin to look into chapter three today, we're gonna see the actual rebuilding of the wall start. And I'm gonna ask you a question as we begin to look at the building of the wall. Who are you in the process of rebuilding, okay? Who are you in the process of rebuilding? You must answer that question because we're going to see when it comes to rebuilding for God, people are going to fall into one of four categories. Now, what are these categories? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to state them right up front, and they're going to look at all four before you ask, where do I fit? All right, here are the four. In the process of rebuilding for God, there are a godly leader, a troublemaker, a bystander, and a fellow worker. All right, those are the four choices, and you have to ask, Who am I in the process? Now, as we go through the text today, you'll be able to consider which label best fits you. And so we're first going to look at a godly leader. (coughs) Now, I'm sure you can guess that the godly leader we're going to look at is Nehemiah, since that's who's been our focus up to now. And we're going to continue to look at him throughout the entirety of this series. And as we look into chapter two and into chapter three, we'll see, see the very important, some very important aspects of a godly leader. And Nehemiah exuded these. You see, as a godly leader, Nehemiah showed us first that a godly leader does this, seeks to fully understand the need. <coughs> Nehemiah had heard the reports about Jerusalem and was moved to help rebuild the city and the people. But up to this point, Nehemiah has only heard about the condition of the city and the people. He hasn't seen this. So here's what we read in chapter two, beginning in verse 11. He said, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected, inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Now skip down to verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I I had not yet told the priests or told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now, don't think that Nehemiah at this point is doing something sneaky here. All right, he's just getting a clear picture of what he is facing. He had heard about the condition of the city and the people, and he wanted to see it firsthand. Before he even shared with the leaders and others what God had put on his heart, he wanted a good grasp of the undertaking that was before him. You know, last week we mentioned how as Nehemiah was praying, he was planning in the background. This is really just another instance where Nehemiah is taking stock of the situation. Understanding fully the need is important if you're going to lead to the proper solution. You know, it may take a a little time and time that some will say, well, you need to be doing something else. But listen, understanding the need fully is important to rebuilding correctly. 
And clearly what Nehemiah saw as he walked around the walls was heartbreaking to him. And maybe in those moments as he saw the destruction and saw the condition of the city wall, it may have been a little overwhelming, all right? But he began to see that picture. And so as a godly leader, the next thing he did was when he had a clear picture of it, he made the need known to others and invited them to join. Look at verse 17. He said, then I said to them, yes, you see the trouble we are in. Our Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now see, after touring the destruction and seeing everything firsthand, Nehemiah was now ready to share the vision with others and invited them to get on board. Now, I hope you noticed something as he shared with them. You notice that as he shared this vision, he said, the trouble we are in and and let us build, (coughs) we may no longer suffer. Those pronouns may seem simple to you, but by including himself with the people, he's identifying with the need. He's not just pointing out the people's issues, he is including himself with them. He could have looked around and said this. Nehemiah could have said, well, what have y'all been doing all these years? I mean, the temple's been rebuilt for 100 years. How come the wall's not rebuilt? How long have you been living here? What have you been doing with your time? Why isn't it rebuilt? He he made a looked at him and said, how could you keep living in this condition and not doing something about it? But you know what? If he'd have done that, would that have been helpful? Not been helpful at all, right? That's not what he was doing. I mean, what I have found this, but if you just pointing, if you just point fingers at people, all right, it normally doesn't help the problem. It typically just makes it worse right? But what he was doing in this moment, he was identifying with the problem. Nehemiah was even taking that first step of solving the problem. Uh, Think about this. When you look at organizations like AA and others, what's the first thing you have to do before you get anything fixed? You have to identify the problem, right? You have to say, there is a problem. We have a problem. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. He says, let's recognize the problem. Let's claim the problem. Because if we recognize the problem and we claim the problem, now we can begin to do something about it. You see, as a Jew, Nehemiah understood that the condition of Jerusalem affected him as much as it did anyone else. He knew he needed to be personally connected to the problem and subsequently to the solution. It's big that Nehemiah doesn't say, here's the problem, you go fix it. But he says, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. A godly leader is prepared to get his or her hands dirty along with the others to complete a task. A great example of this is church planners even who sometimes move to cities where they hear there's a great need of evangelism and people come to know the Lord, that they'll move to a city, sometimes to the most destitute parts of the city where they begin to share the love of Jesus Christ because they said lives need to be rebuilt. So we're going to jump right in the middle. We're going to go and we're going to be a part and we're going to be a part of the solution. You see, as Nehemiah moved to Jerusalem, He saw the condition firsthand. He was able to invite others to join him in the rebuilding. And Nehemiah then demonstrated as a godly leader, he trusts in God's provision. You see, as Nehemiah invites others to join him in rebuilding, look at what he says to them in verse 18. He said, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. You see, we've already seen Nehemiah depend upon God in the past weeks, But here again, he is expressing his dependence upon God. He didn't try to get the people to follow him personally. He challenged them to be ready to be on mission for God. It is a mission that God no doubt was behind because remember the Jews and the the city of Jerusalem (coughs) were to be a testimony for God, right? You remember that? When the city was destroyed... And it was down, when the people were down, remember, it was a way of making an impression about God. 
Because the city was destroyed, people could look and say, well, God must be weak. If Jerusalem is destroyed and the people are torn down, then God, he must be nothing. At minimum, God's witness in the world was not what it could have been. And here's what God wanted. God wanted his witness restored in the world. I mean, it's the same for us today. Think about it, folks. When we look around, and I don't know if you notice it. Maybe your eyes haven't seen it. But if you haven't noticed lately, Christianity is in a shambles. Have you all noticed that? God's church, listen, is in a very difficult spot these days. Have you noticed? If not, we need to open our eyes, all right? <laughs> and when we look at that today, we can say in even our day and time, we see that. What is the testimony it's saying about God to the world? It's saying God's weak. It's saying that the God is not special. And God today, I think, even wants to move into our time to say, I'm ready to rebuild my people. I'm ready to rebuild so that my name is made great in the world again. You see, we know this. God is not weak, is he? No. And Nehemiah knew that as well. In fact, he expressed great confidence when he told the people about the hand of God, how he'd been with them. Nehemiah telling the people what the king had told him should be enough for them to know that God is strong. You see, I'm sure for most of the people, they never thought that they would see a day when King Artaxerxes would say, you can go and rebuild the city. Because Artaxerxes, again, remember, was the one who said, stop building. He put a stop to it. The people never thought they would see a day when Artaxerxes would give permission for rebuilding the start. And so when they heard Nehemiah say, hey, the king, he gave me permission to come. And the king gave me letters. The king gave me everything I need. They had to look and say, well, God must be powerful. If he can move in the heart of King Artaxerxes, then our God must be strong. You see, they knew God must be behind Nehemiah and the work that he was preparing to do. Now, before we move to the next group of people, let's consider one other aspect of a godly leader. It's this, he expects opposition. You see, here's what we all like to think. We all like to think that if we're going to do work for God, if God has given us a vision and we pursue it, that everything's going to go smooth, right? How many want to say yes? That's what we want to think, right? Everything's going to go smooth. However, that is just not the case. Nehemiah knew that what he was going to do for God would not be well received by some. In fact, that is why he asked for letters from the king that we mentioned last week. In fact, look back at verse 9 here in chapter 2. He said, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. <coughs> now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Look at this. Because Nehemiah knew that he would face opposition, he had brought the letters he had requested from the king. But did you also notice this? That the king had also sent a small army with him. Did you notice that? In case anyone wanted to fight what Nehemiah was doing, he was going to be prepared. Having this small army with him meant he was expecting some trouble along the way. In fact, we see in this text two specific people who tried to oppose him, Sanballat and Tobiah. I must mention the need to expect opposition because if you're not expecting it, you can be quickly discouraged when it comes. Opposition can make you doubt what God is calling you to do, and opposition can make you weary of fighting. However, if you are prepared and expecting the opposition, you can at least be ready to deal with this opposition so that it doesn't stop you. In fact, mentioning this opposition takes us to the next type of person that we're going to see in the text, and that is a troublemaker. You know, we've already mentioned the troublemakers by names, but let's look at verse 10 again because there's something we need to see specifically. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, here's what I find very interesting in that. That the reason why Sanballat and Tobiah opposed Nehemiah, did you notice what it was? 
They opposed him because he had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, let me ask you this question. Should we seek the welfare of people? Yes, yes right? Th that should be a good thing, should it not? Yes. I mean, in fact, let me say this. It should be natural for us to seek the welfare of people. It should be natural for us to help others, right? Maybe it should be, but let's consider the reality of the actually with this. Actually, all right. Actually, we don't naturally seek the welfare of others. Right? Can we be honest today? In fact, we naturally have this tendency to seek, guess what? Our own welfare, right? In fact, Sanballat and Tobiah show us that troublemakers first focus on themselves. I mean, why was Sanballat and Tobiah so opposed to Nehemiah's work? Because of this, because a strong Jerusalem and a strong Jewish people were a threat to them. Sanballat and Tobiah were some kind of officials in the region. They very well may have been the governors appointed over this region. They liked the Jews being weak because it made them easy to control and made them pose no threat to their authority. Therefore, the thought of Jerusalem and the Jewish people being, you know, being strong disturbed Sanballat and Tobiah as they wondered how their authority and their dominance in a region might be affected. You see, they thought it was a personal threat to them. They didn't want the welfare of the people, again, because it was a threat to them. You see, troublemakers typically are focused on themselves for one reason or another and cause problems when they don't get their way. Unfortunately, let me say this, each of us have probably been in this category at one time or another in our life. Oh, me, right? We've been there. When we felt threatened or didn't get our way, we opposed whoever it was that had a different opinion or a different approach. As I mentioned, our natural tendency is to focus on ourselves and to pursue our own welfare, so we will oppose those who threaten us in any way. It is a tendency that we have to work to overcome. But there's another characteristic of troublemakers that we have to see in this text. They seek to justify their opposition as being right. Now see, whether they recognize their opposition as self-preservation or whether they acted based upon their perception of the situation, troublemakers justify their opposition as being right. Look at Sanballat and Tobiah in verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You see, Sanballat and Tobiah based their opposition on believing that Nehemiah was rebelling against the king. Since they most likely were appointed governors of the region, I mean, this could make a little sense. However, since Nehemiah had letters from the king that supported what he was doing, they should have known that what he was doing was not rebellion against the king. In reality, I don't believe it mattered to them whether Nehemiah was acting with the authority of the king or not. Since they personally were threatened, they were looking for any excuse to justify their opposition. I believe most of us understand their actions because we have at times in our lives sought to justify what we were doing as right, even when our hearts, we knew what we were doing was wrong. Anybody been there? You don't have to raise your hand, but I hear some saying, yeah, we've done that right. We've all been there. But troublemakers most assuredly seek to justify their opposition as right. Now, when I consider the action of troublemakers, I find one characteristic that stands out above them all, and that's this that they fail to consider or seek God's plan. You know, as I, can sit, as I said, we all have this tendency to seek our own good, and in the process, what often gets pushed aside is God's will and plan for our lives. With a troublemaker, this is especially true. We have seen how Nehemiah was a man of faith who sought God in prayer and sought God's direction for his life. The rebuilding of the wall and the people was not really Nehemiah's plan. It was actually God's plan that Nehemiah was simply carrying out. 
When Sanballat and Tobiah failed to consider, they failed to consider what God's plan was. In fact, look at how Nehemiah replied to their opposition in verse 20. He said, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or ride or claim in Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah's response to the opposition showed that he was confident in what he was doing because he knew that he was pursuing God's will. And because of that, he knew that God was with him and that God would give him success. He also made it clear to Sanballat and Tobiah that their opposition put them at odds with God and that they would not share in the joy of what God was going to do. This should be a warning to any of us. Before we oppose something, we should make sure that, 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 that it, what is God's plan first before we oppose what God is doing. We will be the one to suffer if we oppose God's plan. Amen? Right? So we should always be seeking that. And too often, we're seeking our own will and not God's will. And so we should seek the will of God. Now, to, to point... To this point, we, we've seen there's a, a godly leader and then there's a troublemaker, but there's another category that some people fit in, and that's simply this. It's a bystander. Now, chapter three of Nehemiah is basically a listing of everyone who is working on the rebuilding the wall. But in the midst of this list, we read something that if not careful, we'll just overlook. It's in verse five. Look at verse five. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Look at that. There it is. Their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, what a sad commentary that is. If you read Nehemiah 3, you cannot help but be impressed with how everyone is pitching in to rebuild the wall. It should make sense that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would want to get their city rebuilt. There shouldn't have been any single person who didn't realize the need. The rubble was all around them. It was easy to understand things were not as they used to be. Plus, in their day and time, everyone understood the need for a strong wall for protection. It should have been a natural thing for people to jump in to help rebuild. But there's always those who choose not to participate. In this case, it was the nobles of the Tekoites. Now, I'm not sure what more needs to be said about this group of people, all right? All right, other than to remind you that bystanders will always exist, all right? Leaders can get frustrated with bystanders, wondering how come they will not participate, even seeking ways to get them involved. But a leader at times just has to accept that some people will never jump in and they'll always simply be a bystander. It is why a good word of advice for those of you today that I would challenge to be a leader is to focus on those who will get on board. If you focus on bystanders, you can get discouraged. But when you look around and see the many who've caught the vision and are moving forward, it can get to you as a leader in the encouragement that you need to keep rebuilding. I should also remind those who want to just be on the sidelines and not help in God's work that you'll miss out on a blessing when God's work is done, okay? Now, there's another group of people that we need to look at, and it's actually the largest group of people. This is the fellow worker. Now, I'm not gonna read much of chapter three, but I'm gonna read just a few verses so that we can see a pattern. So look, chapter three, beginning in verse one. And it says, then Elishab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priest. And they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery built. The sons of Hassanai built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshulam, repaired. And next to them, Zodak, the son of Bana, repaired. 
You love those names, right? Not really. Now let's just stop there and let's recognize a pattern. We see a description of a person or a group who built a specific part of the wall. For example, in this case, Eliashib, the high priest with his brothers, the priest built the sheep gate, and then we see the phrase, and next to them. All right, followed by the name of another group who is rebuilding. Now, if you read chapter three, this pattern appears over and over in Nehemiah three, and it shows when it came to rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, it was a joint effort. It took many people who are willing to do their part, completing the building of the wall, working side by side to see that the task got done. Now, some may wonder why all these names are mentioned in Nehemiah 3. I mean, is it really necessary that we have all these names mentioned? I mean, if you like me, if you're like me, here's what happens. You hit a part of scripture like Nehemiah chapter 3 has all these names listed. What do you want to do? Skip. I'm just going to go to the next chapter, right? We'll get a confession. That's what we all want to do, right? Who wants to read all these names? What does it all matter? However, let me just say this. God saw fit that these names made it into the scripture. And this list could serve to preserve, first of all, historical accuracy of what happened, but maybe it is also a reminder of this, all right, that every person is important to God, all right? He knows our name and he knows what we do for him. In a world where you may be overlooked and not recognized for what you do, don't despair because God sees and God's rewards. You know what? Your name may never be written down and recognized in an earthly record. It may, may, may never be in the spotlight as someone who did something great, but you can be assured of this, that God has your name written down in his book for what you have done. All right? He knows it. Now, with that stated, I want us to note two specific things about these fellow workers in chapter three. The first thing is this, their sanctity. I remind you that sanctity means this. It means something that is set apart as sacred. It's recognized as holy. Going back to verse one of chapter three, we'll see that what is happening here is more than just a wall being built. Look at it again. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, notice the first person mentioned in the rebuilding was who? The high priest. Not just any priest, but the high priest. The one who on the day of atonement would go into the most holy of place. He had the responsibility of representing the people before God. It's a huge statement that the first person who began the work is the spiritual leader who represented the people. He was joined in by the other priest, and it should be noted that the first thing they built is the sheep gate. All right? Now, that may not mean anything to most of you. It should when you consider this that the sheep gate is the gate that the sacrifices would come through on their way to the temple. See, if you know your Old Testament, you know that these sacrifices were the way that the people would come to God. They were able to come to God. They were able to seek forgiveness and they were able to find help from God. It's not an accident that this gate was the first portion of the wall that was rebuilt. This was to show that the most important thing that was happening was the spiritual rebuilding of the people. This idea is supported when we read that this verse, that the priest consecrated the sheep gate. In fact, it is the only portion of the wall that was consecrated. It's the only part that they did this to. When you look at what is happening here, there's this overall statement being made that the work that is being done is a sacred work. It is a work that is set apart for God. What we need to see is that clearly the most important thing that needs to happen is that people are connected to God again so that their lives are rebuilt. 
Truly what is happening is more than just a physical building of a wall, but the spiritual rebuilding of people. And here, this should be a reminder to us of this, right? That if we're truly going to undertake a work for the Lord that has have any meaning, it must be a gospel-centered work. I appreciate, Dana, we didn't even plan this, that you shared that this morning about clarity, that it's gospel-centered. You see, if we're going to do anything of real value for God, it can't be just I'm rebuilding something. I can't just be doing a physical project. It has to be that it has to be gospel-centered. It has to be about redeeming lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it becomes a gospel-centered ministry, then it becomes a sanctified work for God. Because again, God's more interested in rebuilding the lives of people than he is anything else. You see, Nehemiah was a part of a sanctified work. It was set apart for God. But now another thing that we need to see in these fellow workers is this, is that there was unity. You know, if you read through chapter three, we'll see all kinds of people working together. We've already mentioned the priests, but there's ordinary people, there's merchants, there's business owners, there's politicians, families, teenagers, all these different people from different backgrounds work together to see that the wall was built. When you consider all the different people that work together, you have to wonder how did they get along, right? Let me ask you today, you think all these people could get along in our day and time? Think about the politician working next to the preacher, all right? Seems almost like an impossibility these days, amen? Right? But here's the answer. How'd they get along? The answer is easy. They saw what they were doing as something greater than themselves. They recognized that what they were doing was a work for the Lord, and so that allowed them to work with people who are often much different than themselves. And what a great word for believers today. You see, if we undertake a work, all right, that is a truly a mission for God, then we too should be able to work alongside of people who are much different than ourselves and we still be unified in what we do. You see, oftentimes disunity happens because we've forgotten the true goal and we've moved from working for God to our selfish motives. And when we get in our selfish motives, that's when disunity comes in. All right, does that make sense? See, see, let me also make a note that as the people are listed, that they each have a different air of the wall, which they were responsible. They were working side by side, but each had the responsibility and the wall was only, only going to get rebuilt if everyone did their part. I also find it interesting that at least in verse 23, we read this. After them, Benjamin and has these names, you love these names, right? Has Hub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah and the son of Hananiah repaired beside his own house. All right. Sometimes folks, let me hear this. Sometimes the work that needs to be done, all right, is a part of the house that's right next door to yours. All right. Think about this. There are probably lives on your own street that God is wanting you to help rebuild. We all need to be aware that there's work to be done everywhere and we each need to do our part. If we recognize the work is ultimately God's work, no matter where it was located, no matter what it looks like, then we can support each other in seeing that the work is complete. All right, does that make sense? Now, now let's pause here because we need to make sure that we fully understand how, how all this applies to us. You see, hopefully in past weeks, we've established that what is recorded in Nehemiah is a record of God working amongst his people. Because this is about God, we can draw principles that apply to us today. In fact, if we consider a couple of passages of Matthew, we can be reminded of what God wants us to be a part of, a part of rebuilding lives. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them 
because they harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, he spent time rebuilding lives. He then told his disciples to pray to the Father to send out laborers. In other words, Jesus knew that the Father wanted an army of people working to rebuild lives. Do you get that? What do you think he wants us doing? All right. If you, if that should be obvious. If not, let's consider Matthew 28. Where Jesus looked at the disciples, he said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You see, clearly God wants us helping to rebuild lives so that people are his disciples. That means he wants us to help people know of his love for them, know of his love for them, find forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and then live in the joy of the Lord. The question each person has to answer is the question that I started with this morning. Who are you in the rebuilding process? Are you a leader? Are you a troublemaker? Are you a bystander? Are you a fellow worker? Now, it should be clear when I list those four, two of them are good and two of them are bad, right? Two of them we want to be, two of them we don't want to be. I'm even going to say this. If we're the two that we should be, often those two overlap. Because really, here's what I say. God wants every person to be both a godly leader and a fellow worker. Right? Are y'all with me today? It's hard for me to tell. I can't hear anything, remember? Okay. Now, obviously, God doesn't want us being a troublemaker, right? God doesn't want us to be a bystander. He wants us to be a whole. And we have to ask, who are we? Because God wants people to be leaders in rebuilding their lives. And again, when I think about clarity that, that Dana spoke and shared with us about, there was a point in time when a group of people saw the need. They became burdened about that need in our community. And as they saw that need, they shared the vision with other people. And other people came involved with it, uh, on board with them. And they began clarity. And through the years, what has happened through clarity? I mean, they've had fellow workers that have come on and they've been a part of that, right? As they share the gospel, as they rebuild lives. But it started with people seeing the vision and inviting others to be a part of that. Now, along the way, I'm going to tell you, there have been some people who've just stood by and watched. They've not been a part. There have been others who've been troublemakers. Trust me, if you run a crisis pregnancy center, there are people that don't want to see you exist, right? They're out there. But there are people who stood the test of time and we have testimonies of lives even recently that have been changed. Lives that have been, been, been saved, physical lives saved, spiritual lives have been saved because of that work. That is a great example. And I want us to know God's calling all of us to that. Again, I go back. First of all, what is the need that God has laid upon your heart? What is the burden? And if you have that, now let me ask you, who are you gonna be in meeting that need? Are you gonna be a leader? Okay. Are you going to be a fellow worker? Are you going to be a troublemaker? Are you going to be a bystander? See, here's my prayer. My prayer would be that we would recognize that there's much rebuilding that needs to be done in our day and time. You know what? If we didn't recognize the brokenness in our world before COVID, surely we recognize that now, do we not? Amen. That even as a church, we found itself in a place that we need to even be rebuilt. Who are you going to be in the process? Here's what I'm convinced of that God wants to use each person here today for his glory, all right? And I wanna know, are you ready to be a part of what God wants you to do? You're a part of this process, you hear me? Yes, 
Yes. And so here's what I pray. I pray as we move forward here at Valley Creek, we'll find godly leaders. We'll find fellow workers. And we'll not find a single bystander. And we're not gonna find a single troublemaker. I'm praying for a miracle, amen? But that people step up and say, look, we see the need around us. We see the world that is broken. We see a community that needs to be rebuilt. We see a church that needs to be real. We see lives that need to be rebuilt. And we're going to be a part of that sanctified work because God is still in the business of rebuilding lives. So I'm going to ask you this morning as I close. I'm going to close pretty abruptly, but I'm going to ask you the question. Who are you in the rebuilding process? And I want you today to answer that to God. Would you pray with me, Father, as we bound your presence today? Lord, I have no doubt that you're a rebuilding God. We sang of your glory this morning and even God sang of our need to open our eyes to who you are. And I have no doubt, God, if we open our eyes to who you are, you'll move in our lives and you'll do even like you did to Isaiah so many years ago when he saw you and confessed his sin, that you healed him And you sent him out. You sent him out to to do your work. And Father, I know that's what you're wanting to do this morning. So as we're gathered here as your people, Lord, my prayer would be that you would raise up an army to be rebuilding our community, to be rebuilding lives. That we'll have people step up and say, I'm ready to lead as God wants me to lead. I'm ready to be a fellow worker as God wants me to work hand in hand with others to rebuild lives, that they're ready to be that. And if there's Father, any here today that's just been a bystander, God, that they would be convicted and they would say, it's time to get off the sidelines. It's, I'm ready to get in the game. And if any's a troublemaker, that they would be convicted of that too. And they would put that aside. They'd confess that. And they would put troublemaking aside and they today would become a fellow worker because Father, I know that's your desire for us all. So simply speak to hearts this morning, God. Simply speak to hearts. Help us to be a part of your rebuilding process today, I pray. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.